Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we discuss Labour's relationship with the media. In our rapidly changing media landscape, what does an effective strategy look like and is Labour's approach the right one? Shortly, we'll be joined by the former editor of the London Evening Standard and the Today programme, Sarah Sands, and by one of Tony Blair's former senior comms advisors, Tim Allen. So, Sam, have you managed to get any work done or, like the rest of us, have you just been glued to the COVID inquiry? Yeah, it's quite compelling. I think the fact that I um, used to work with Dominic Cummings and spent four years in the same room as him means I'm slightly less shocked than everybody else by some of the stuff coming out in terms of his language and uh, his uh, his approach to people management. Oh, but, was he uh, like that when you worked? Did he swear all the time? Oh, yeah, yeah. His language Did he ever call important. you a fuck pig? He didn't. He called me dwarf. That was his name nice. for me. He, yeah, he just generally, he, in quite an affectionate way, he That's just let me shout across the whole of the ministerial floor, dwarf, come here. I need you to look at this. <laughs> I mean, that's, um, I mean, that's like flirting compared to what so he's compared been saying. No, but he, he swore all the time. He was, he, you know, shouty, all caps, emails. They were called domograms in the Department for Education. Like people were scared of getting a domogram, which was like an all caps, mad, no punctuation email from him. So, yeah, he's, he's always been like this. I presume, I mean, this was a particularly stressful period, so I suspect he went up another notch. But yeah, it's And not, when not... you worked with him and he behaved like that, did anybody ever dare call him out? Like what was Michael was Gove a... doing at this point? So, so Michael did really um there was a there were a couple of formal complaints made about him that i think he got cleared of um because he flushed the person's head he was never physically violent towards anybody most of his bad language was used sort of behind people's back he didn't tend to say it directly to their face he sort of just glower at people what a when noble he was man on, he is yeah he sort of just glower at people and look sort of but you know he he, he, he so there, there was sort of civil service concern, but yeah, you know, it, it, our system, and I think it's really 
coming through quite clearly in the COVID inquiry, is just not well set up for dealing with very aggressive people like that. There's a sort of sense in which everyone is supposed to behave with a level of decorum. And when they don't, no one quite knows what to do. And so people like him can survive in our system for quite a long time. But I think our system is set up to reward men like that. It's not Mm. exclusively men, but on the whole, it is a, a real symptom of male toxic behaviour in politics. There's a, there is a feeling that if you're a kind of senior man in politics, you are sort of expected and allowed to be the, the kind of love child of, of Alistair Campbell and Malcolm Tucker, mm. that, that is, that's your starting point. And for me, I mean, look, the, the, te- the testimony has been sort of jaw-dropping from Lee Kane saying, I don't really think the Prime Minister had the right skill set to deal with this mm. um, crisis, to all the Dominic Cummings stuff. But for me, listening to Helen McNamara's testimony about how deeply misogynistic yeah. the culture. And Helen was deputy well. cabinet secretary, so she was in a very senior position during all of this. Yeah, and I I know Helen very well. I've actually worked with Helen uh when I was a, a an advisor, political advisor, and she is a real professional. She's really, really smart. But clearly there was this environment where um women were not really allowed to play a role. They weren't really in the room. They weren't really at the table. And I think our politics is a lot poorer for that. You know, I've done a lot of writing and but I did a stand-up show about what it was like being a woman in, in politics. And, you know, I made light of it. But Helen has really, I think, articulated the dark side of being that individual woman in that environment, but also the immense damage that is done when you don't listen to all the talent that's available. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it, it, it's unquestionably true that that kind of um, very, very macho male environment made our ability to deal with the pandemic much worse. Um, and it went up. You know, I've, I've spoken, I've interviewed many people who were in the cabinet office during during that period. And they say, you know, there's always this problem, but it went up a lot during during COVID. So the stress and the pressure on everyone sort of with no guardrails just created this environment where, you know, even very senior civil servants, let alone people like Cummings or Boris Johnson, were using appalling language. We're just ignoring women who were making points in the room. You know, often there were you know, rooms full of people with only one woman in there who was, you know, being ignored. Um and uh, yeah, creating that kind of toxic environment makes it so much harder to deal with. And problems. also, when that environment is really alive and thriving, when you are the only woman in the room, it is so difficult to mm. be that kind of one voice. You know, for quite a long time, I was the only woman in the room when Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party. And my job often was to pour the tea and coffee and to mm. do Ed Miliband's right. sort of makeup, you know, and, and you know, there, there's just a sort of. There is a culture that just prevails. And nobody individually, by the way, thinks they are being a bad person. No, I mean, even Dominic Cummings was saying, I'm, I wasn't the problem. I, wasn't, I, was, I was supporting all of these young women at the same time as using the most awful language about um, another woman. So, yeah, you, know, you can see it's giving us such a clear insight into so many of the problems that people like you and me who've worked in government have seen. And it's making it sort of public in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. Yeah. Um, and just on that, what do you think about Dominic Cummings' challenge to all of us saying, OK, you might be clutching your pearls over the slightly fruity bad language, but are we taking our eye off the bigger question, which is who was right? Was I right or was Boris Johnson right? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what Dominic has never understood is that those this kind of personal behaviour affects 
the wider structural kind of issues that he he's talking about. You know, he's right to say there are a lot of issues and challenges in the civil service, but the worst possible way you can deal with them is by behaving like that, behaving like a child and making everyone terrified of you. There is no way if you behave like that that you are going to be able to deal with some of the structural challenges in the civil service that he rightly points to. We've also, I guess, seen Keir Starmer having some issues this week. I get he's probably quite pleased this was a big COVID inquiry week because he's been having his own troubles within the Labour Party, which has split somewhat over the horrific war in Israel and Palestine. Uh, he did a big speech this week to try and sort of settle the issue, to try and find a, a sort of compromised position that would hold across the MPs in particular. Do, do you think he succeeded? Well, I thought the actual substance of his speech was was quite good at Chatham House. And I think it was quite measured. And I think it sort of set out a sort of kind of coherent position. Now, a lot of people will still be very upset that he's not calling for a ceasefire. And, and I understand that. And I wouldn't dismiss people for being, you know, very passionate about a ceasefire. But I think people have got to get real, like Hamas is not going to be listening to what the Labour Party says mm. when it comes to a ceasefire, nor is Netanyahu. So I th- and, and also no other Western ally has broken ranks to say, let's have a ceasefire. Everybody else is landing the same place that the government is, that Keir Starr is, which is let's do more on aid and, and I know I, I had interviewed the German ambassador on my radio show for an hour last weekend and really pushed him on this as well because um, they too abstained on that UN vote mm. on the Friday night he was just very honest he was like everyone is in the same position behind the scenes there's frantic diplomacy going on really pushing Israel to do more um, you know breaks for, for, for aid um, to, to get through but he also made the point the only people that the Israelis are listening to. I mean, Hamas is not going to be listening to anybody, Mm. apart from Iran, probably, Mm. and some of the other um, regional players. The only country that Israel is engaging with, they don't care about anyone else, is America. Yeah, so I I mean, I I think that's right in the, it's really a very parochial way of looking at the crisis through the eyes of the Labour Party, and there's quite a bit of posturing going on. There there is, but what what I I think what I would say in defence of those people is that I I think you can't underestimate the damage that Iraq did to to the Labour Party. Absolutely. And, and you know, Keir Starmer, look, going back in the day, was somebody who said, look, I think this, this war is illegal. And I think what happened is that I think, understandably, the shadow of Jeremy Corbyn hangs over the Labour Party. Mm. Keir Starmer rightly wanted to show that he stood absolutely, you know, shoulder to shoulder w- with Israel, which I think is the right thing to do, given what happened on the 7th of October. But I think that, um, initial LBC interview was clumsy. He did mm, sort of mess up yeah, on that really interview. And what they should have done is corrected it immediately instead of waiting for sort of way over a week. I think mm. it was like seven, eight, nine days. And then there was a very unpleasant briefing from um, somebody in his comms team where they referred to the resignation of really good female Muslim councillors, Labour councillors. We're always trying to encourage women from different Mm. backgrounds to stand for politics. These women did. They were really good women. And um, they were referred to as like it was removing fleas. And, you know, I just think 
That... Well, it goes back to the dominant coming problem. You can see this in Labour as well. There's just this belief amongst certain people within the party that you have to behave like Malcolm Tucker yeah. in order to be good at politics. That's what being good at politics is. So you see, you know, there was a briefing against Andy Burnham, which you know was was a, a pointlessly aggressive as well. I saw the other day. You know, what it it just can't help that these very tense situations in which you're dealing with something that is hugely emotive and understandably so for people to start throwing around these kind of aggressive briefings. I completely. And also, I don't really think, you know, knowing Keir Starmer a bit, I just don't think that's sort of what his character is really like. He's instinctively quite a bridge builder. Mm. And when you have Suella Braverman, who is really trying to kind of exploit this for mm. her kind of own very, very bad agenda, let's be honest, it's very easy to be divisive in these very emotional times. What's actually more difficult and more important is to try and bring people together and try and, and be unified. Mm. And I think he, I think he can absolutely see... I'm going to hold this line on on the ceasefire and here's my arguments. But I think he and his team have just got to be alive to, you know, this is a really delicate moment for, for the Labour Party. I don't think it's going to cost him the election or anything like that. No, it's but... more about internal the internal balance and sort of managing those relationships between, you know, people like the mayors and, and Starmer and And also, I think, you know, the, the Labour Party wants to be a broad <clears throat> church. You know, the Labour Party has prided itself on having people from different faiths, from different ethnic backgrounds. You know, it wants to be this kind of broad coalition and it just has to be mindful of everybody in the kind of coalition it's trying to sort of bring together. Joining us now to discuss Labour's media strategy are two people who've been working on both sides of the media political divide for many years. Tim Allen helped guide Tony Blair's media strategy in the 1990s. Hello, Tim. Hello, Aisha. And from 2012 to 2017, Sarah Sands was the editor of the London Evening Standard before becoming editor of the Mighty Today programme. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Aisha. Well, look, it's great to have you with us. This is an episode that Sam and I have been keen mm. to talk about for, for quite some time because we are in this situation where lots of people are making parallels between the situation we're in now and the run-up to 1997. So, Tim, let's start with you. Take us back to that run-up to 1997, 1995, 1996. What did you do with others in your team, with Alistair, Peter Mandelson, Tony Blair, how did you recalibrate Labour's relationship with the media? Um, well, I think when Tony Blair became leader in 1994, there was a, a great interest in him with parts of the media who had always been anti-Labour or not supportive of the Labour Party. There was a recalibration amongst the readers of a lot of those newspapers about uh, wanting uh, they had a more positive approach to Labour. And I think the editors and the proprietors of those newspapers were led by their readers into a more positive uh, amount of, of coverage. So I think there was there was a, a definite attempt to uh, engage with them more and to take advantage of the fact that there was a more supportive audience among certain newspapers than there had been for a long time. You've got to remember we were in a different situation in that there had been a long journey out of the darkest days of the Labour Party in 1981, 83, the terrible election loss then. There had been Neil Kinnock, there had been uh, John Smith, there had been a lot of changes to the party that took on, but it was really Tony Blair's election that completely transformed the positioning of the Labour Party, and that positioning led to a recalibration amongst the newspapers and allowed us to have a, a 
better relations, more engaged relations with with newspapers that had previously been hostile. And that proved to be successful, as we know, and that we won by a big uh, majority in 1997. But I don't think it was a, it's often portrayed as um, there was a, we had a brilliant media, media strategy, so we won. And I think that is complete nonsense, really. We, we won because we had a, a great candidate who struck a chord with the country and who had changed and modernized the Labour Party completely into a, in, and had an attractive uh, set of policies to put before the country against a Tory party who had been there for 18 years. Labour didn't win because we had good spin doctors you know that it's just not it's just not true we had we we won because there was a really great candidate who had changed the party and sarah you're on the other side at this point you're in the media is that true what what tim says when when tony blair arrives do you all in the media suddenly go ah i like the look of this person i think you had to get used to it so the threat disappeared and certainly i my crossover would be working on the Evening Standard when John Smith died. And he was rather a heroic, um, decent um, figure. But I remember a comment piece on tax, so nothing changes. Mm. Would it mean everyone had to pay more tax? So there are certain words, tax being one of them, that can always be um, thrown around at at elections. And then going on to the Telegraph, and there was Tony Blair again, um, someone who... uh, was perfectly at home in proprietors' houses mm-hmm. and wasn't threatening. And actually, when I think when um, I came to know him slightly at the um, first at the Evening Standard, and I think that was sort of Bambi Blair, wasn't it? There was a sort mm. of you know sweetness about him. And I remember he 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 was a friend of a, a figure at the time who's called James Hughes Onslow, and of his time he was a diary figure, and he introduced Tony Blair to everyone. No one had no one had come across him and just said, you know, give him a chance. Mm. So he was probably the poshest person on the paper. He was an old Etonian, um, and uh, he was a friend of James Hughes Onslow. The other interesting thing about James Ons- uh, Hughes Onslow is he turned out to be a lover of Jermaine Greer. So he right. um, wow, he was an inter- he was a more interesting figure than he was given credit for, <laughs> but. He <laughs> he was the one I remember introducing Tony Blair into into the paper. And I remember Tony Blair talking about crime, which had been something that tended to resonate amongst right-wing papers and made the point that actually the main victims of crime would be the poorer. Um, it's next door. It's not you know you and your you and your big houses. Um, it's it's the people next door. And actually, similarly, I think with benefits but it was it was education and crime i think mm. with a with yeah. were the um, subjects weren't they that it yeah. started with and they were he he was very good at having a having a policy program that that was attractive and dealing mm. with dealing with a lot of the negatives that some newspapers had associated with labor in the past i, I think the labor party was good at being very in tune with the newspapers but very in tune with sort of working class voters at, at the same time and i think a lot of what happened to left wing parties then and uh, it can easily happen to left wing parties now as you start uh, having the the values and the concerns of educated liberal lefties and that's always a, a, a danger 
political parties are, are stuffed full of those people and you end up spending time with a lot of those people and journalism is stuffed full of those people as well and you end up reflecting the values of those and I think what he was he he and other people like David Blunkett were very good at as was actually saying no let's let let's also have the concerns of working class voters and people who read working class newspapers and let's not be embarrassed about having policies that are attractive for them partly because they believed in them but also they, they recognised the electoral arithmetic that there weren't enough uh, liberal left-wing people concerned about constitutional reform to get them over the line, <laughs> and they needed other policies as well. Do you do you think there was an extent to which that kind of interest in things like crime and welfare and immigration became more comms-driven over time? Um, I'm thinking of sort of Lance Price's book where he talks about sort of endlessly having to come up with crackdowns on immigrants and crackdown on benefits stories when he was. But this was yeah. sort of in government in 1998, yeah. 1999. Do you think it sort of moved away from being something that was instinctive to Blair and, and, and people like Blunkett into being something that was more, you know, we've got to keep hitting this to keep the papers on side? Yeah, uh, possibly in, in government. I, I think, again, I don't think it's right to say that we were just media led in that sense. I think there was a policy program that, that we wanted to put together and then we needed to find media stories that brought it to life. And I, I, don't think it, I don't think that is the same as being media led i think we we were always looking for uh, okay we we want the, the basic campaign architecture our messaging architecture was set probably 95 96 ish which you probably remember the you know uh, many not the few uh, future not the past leadership not drift those were our big campaign messages education number one priority and then below that was the policy pledges that came together they were all meant to bring to life those dividing lines what does many not the few really mean in terms of policy what does a leadership not drift mean and you would come up with the policies and and the job really was to get people on telly talking about one of those dividing lines through the lens of a policy but that quite strategic approach to comms was quite new at the time. Like it, 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 it's, it's fair to say that, that the major government had really struggled with that kind of approach to comms um, in an era where suddenly there was 24-hour news and there was much more to sort of focus on that. And, and when you guys came in in 97, there was quite a big shift in the focus on the role of communications in government as a way of driving policy forward. Um, there was a new approach, I suppose, in terms of message discipline as i said we had that architecture in in opposition we had the one slide that contained all all our messages and we were good at getting our people on the radio and tv parroting those messages and talking about the policies but in a in a sort of strategic way and it is true that in opposition sorry in government we brought that same framework you, you know we, we were elected as new labor we will govern as new labor was the big mm. thing we've changed the party we're ready to modernize the country and there was a sense that you couldn't just be blown around in government and just be just following the news or announcing new policies each, having each department uh, saying what it wanted to on the, on the policy of the day we wanted a, a system where where policies were in tune with the overall messaging and that they that, that they would have to be saying we're doing this because we believe in modernizing Britain that's what we're trying to do we're doing this because uh, we believe in the future not the past and this is the old way of doing it and this is the new way of doing it so we, we, we would ensure that the policy announcements were infused with a message 
I can sort of jump at this point because I started my life, my professional life, as um, a very junior press officer in the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food Press mm. Office Dang. in 1997 <laughs> after mm. the Labour um, victory. And I will always, I mean, I was basically just started as like the admin girl, but I used to go to all the kind mm. of morning meetings. And I will never, ever forget this hilarious scene of um, our lovely director of communications, a man called Graham Blakeway, who sadly has um, passed away. And he came back from a meeting at number 10 and he was like, I've got, he was Scottish, he's like, everyone's got to come into the room immediately. A terrible thing has happened. <laughs> and everyone comes into the room and it was so like, everyone was just on there, like really like comfortable, like coming in at 10 o'clock in the morning. There was no pressure. He's like, they've got this new thing. It's called a grid. <laughs> it's a grid. Everyone's like, what do you mean a grid? An agriculture. <laughs> they were like, it's a grid. And it's like, you're meant to know the future. It's like being a time lord. <laughs> you're meant to know what stories are coming up next week. I don't know what they expect of us. I've never heard anything like it. So there was, in the civil service, there was mm. quite a feeling of kind of shock and awe. Yeah. And, and it now one, seems so familiar, right? Because this has yeah. been the way things have worked for a very long time. And then time, at one yeah. point, this poor man got given a pager, which he thought was like some sort of security tag. <laughs> and then I think he accidentally, on purpose, dropped it down the toilet. <laughs> did, you, did you, Sarah, ex experience that shift in the media? Did you see this sort of change in approach between the major and Blair governments, did it feel very different? Yes, it did. And there was certainly that uh, wrestle to control that agenda because mm. journalists um, don't like grids. It's quite insulting mm. to them. <laughs> um, and so uh, you would want to, to break the grid. So then you bought in your system of punishments and rewards, which, and, yeah. you know, the, the birth of Armando Inucci's, um, you know, genius, um, a, a com. So it was sort of very interesting that it was both, I think you're absolutely right about Tony Blair, that he was a very persuasive figure on that, that um, you, you had to have that kind of um, a candidate and, and, and prime minister. And heavens, if you think how mm. persuasive he was, he mm. could actually bring people into the Iraq war and so on, you know. So he was a um, hugely persuasive figure. But you also had that backup behind of, as I say, sort of threats and rewards and journalists suddenly feeling that they were being cast out and others favoured. You know, I remember a tremendous argument where I was very, very indignant about why David Hare wasn't being given special access. Oh, God, I was going, He's David Hare! <laughs> was doing an election campaign. And it was absolutely up to... Um, perhaps Alistair Campbell, yeah. <laughs> of, of saying yeah. uh, who he liked, who he didn't, who he... So it was a kind of game, um, but it was... Uh, but but that was what was going on yeah. behind. Wasn't it? Yeah, I think... Well, I don't. I wouldn't agree with the word punishments, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, but of course but, you wouldn't. <laughs> just occasional be, beatings just to keep people <laughs> behaving. No, I, people <laughs> no, but I, look, I think looking back, it is true that it was very... You had very personal relations yes. with each media organization and there weren't very many of them and they mm. were like 11 newspapers and so part of my job and I was Alistair's uh, deputy was yeah having good relations with his the, the key political and other journalists and editors on those newspapers and that they were sort of those individual relationships were really really important in the way that with the explosion of media and the decline of traditional media and particularly newspapers that part of the job is probably gone away and in, uh, in that those individual relations with individual journalists are less important and you had good relationships with some people who who you thought were in your view were fair in you know in, in critics view would were were you know too favorable to us or whatever and then you'd have difficult relationships with people that in, that in, in my view you know were out to get us and other people's view were you know 
very good combative journalist or whatever but but you you would end up with with those personal relationships were were very important and part of the the job of uh, people like Alistair and I was uh, navigating those relationships and making sure that the right journalist wrote the right story uh, so that it came out in the, in the right way and that but that did lead to a lot of uh, unhappiness among some other journalists and basically the, if you you know you gave one exclusive you made one newspaper happy and you annoyed 10 of them so it was all uh, and that that when you repeated that quite a lot you ended up with a lot of enemies <laughs> and b- before we sort of move on to what the media landscape is like now one of the great pieces of mythology around maybe it's not mythology we're going to ask you now uh, tim was the fact that the thing that really swung it for labor in 1997 was you guys taking the decision to bend the knee to Rupert Murdoch mm. and sort of prostrate yourself in front of Rupert Murdoch mm. to kind of, you know, get his favour. What really happened? What was the truth about that? Well, uh, yeah, I think it is, it is true that even before Tony Blair was leader, the son in particular was, you know, writing about Tony Blair more positively, even when he was Shadow Home Secretary uh, and doing uh, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. There was there was better coverage in the in the sun for him than there had been for uh, other, you know, for other Labour leaders uh, in in the past, and then when he became leader, there was there was a there did seem to be a, a real shift. And you got to remember, it seems funny looking back at how that age of moguls they were really really important, and the individual newspapers were really really important. I was looking before, just looking this just this afternoon. I mean, the circulation was. Four million out of the sun back and then. That's about seven hundred thousand. Well, they don't even tell you what it is yeah. now. They've, they've removed themselves from the ABC yeah. thing. So, but it is definitely uh, under under a million, I yeah, thought, yeah. by now. And uh, and a lot of the newspapers, it's been even more uh, dramatic uh, fall. And readership was seen as three times circulation. So you had twelve million people reading the Sun every day. That's really important if you're trying to get a message. It's really important that they hate you and want you to never be elected. Uh, they, they're likely to swing, be quite influential. So when Tony Blair gets criticised for, you know, trying to speak to the owner of that particular organisation and trying to persuade him that he might like to reconsider his views about uh, about Labour, that doesn't seem to be a totally unreasonable thing to do if you're trying to get elected. So yes, there, there was an attempt to persuade. Uh, the Sun and other uh, newspapers, but because of that, it's sort of totemic value, particularly the Sun, to 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 reassess Labour and to give us a fairer hearing. And there were better relationships across the board in terms of. I mean, I, Tony Blair spoke to Rupert Murdoch. I didn't exactly speak to Rupert every day, but the relations with the Sun journalists, the Sun political team, got got a lot better as well. And then eventually, it uh, ended up with the Sun. Uh, backing Labour, but it's a bit mythologised in that all that really swung it. I mean, they sun-backed Labour at the time when I think we were about three months short of the election and we had a 25-point lead, (laughs) so it was nice to have, but it wasn't exactly the thing that made us popular. And it was already at a point where most of their readers were going to vote for you anyway, right? This is the thing, and they are driven by readers in the end. Yeah. And and Sarah, is is that true? Are, are, you know, as as someone who's, you know, worked in newspapers, a lot, many different newspapers, is that true? Are editors driven by the polls and are they driven by their readers or do they want to impose their views and and lead their readers? Yes, it's a good point. Ideally, 
um, an editor's view should nicely coincide with that of the readers and of the proprietor. And then um, <laughs> uh, it's all working very, very well. Um, I was interested that thinking back actually at, at the Telegraph, where it perhaps was um, quite sure it was totally at one with the readers on um, what to do post Blair. I, I mean, how, how you regroup, regrouped on the Tories and, you know, the great enthusiasm later on for the leadership of Ian Duncan Smith, who mm. many <laughs> qualities, but perhaps not mm. winning is one. So actually the idea on the whole, you think, oh, what do, what do proprietors want or, or, or what does anyone want? They want winners. So of course, you're just going to back the winner. Who, who um, And there is a, a bit of that. There was a sort of quirkiness about the Telegraph that not necessarily so. So tended to go for figures that were perhaps more ideological. And I guess, again, the great strength of, of Tony Blair was that uh, idea of being at the centre. And it sometimes is more interesting for um, newspapers. So that's another thing, is you do want to, you you want um, news to be interesting and your candidates to be interesting. And so um, there may be a, a rush of blood as there was, I think, on one or two newspapers for the short premiership of Liz Trust, for instance. But you suddenly kind of think, mm. here we are with this really interesting, radical set of policies. So the idea of what's radical as opposed to what's um, mainstream and, and winnable is also that is something that Do papers you think can the, wrestle with. The papers, particularly the papers on the right, have moved away from their readerships a bit over the last few years. It's certainly not the only reason circulation's falling. That's predominantly to do with the internet. But that there is a sense in which the mail is no longer really speaking to the kind of mail reader anymore. The Telegraph isn't speaking to the Telegraph readers. It's it's almost trying to influence directly the politicians, as we saw during COVID with you know Boris Johnson being very influenced by what the Telegraph said, uh, rather than their readership, who actually were quite in favour of lockdowns at the time. Or perhaps readers are speaking to each other and maybe they're bypassing mm. newspapers in a way and, and talking to each other through Facebook. Or So it's much mm. more um, peer group. Um, and in which case, what's the role for newspapers now? And actually one of them, it would still be to influence policy. I think that they would still think that that's where they can make a difference. And it is interesting how much um, the news is still led actually by what's written in newspapers. It's, mm. um, I remember when I first went to the Today programme and the first thing we were going to do was to change the newspaper view and it'd be much more about social media and so on. And one thing is it's very, very difficult to keep up with what's going on in social media. You know? mm. And uh, so you tend to revert to, oh, and look what's on the front page. It's interesting that it's often columnists now, I notice. Mm. William Hague's quoted endlessly as a, yeah. as someone. So you, you the voices in, in newspapers can still be strong. And it's and really interesting you say that because when I talk to comms people you know, who are working for the parties now, now and I say, but you know, why are you still worrying about these papers that yes. have a circulation of half a million, you know, far fewer than it used to be? And they say, well, it's not because of people who are reading the paper, it's mm. because it leads the BBC. Yep. Uh, and the BBC respond to those headlines, yep. and that's why we need to make sure we still have good relationships. Yes. Is there a point at which that breaks and the BBC thinks, okay, this isn't actually what we should be reporting anymore? Well, it helps the BBC with attribution also. So there may mm. be something you want to discuss, but you have to be so careful. But if you say, oh, someone has said this mm. in the paper, um, it, it, that, that gives you a, a bit of distance. Um, and it is where the uh, still, I guess, where the arguments are being played out. Mm. Yeah. And that would, that's really annoying from the, uh, not, not, your, not your, what you said, Sarah, <laughs> you're not annoying at all, but what I mean, that, 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 that um, relationship is, is annoying when 
the BBC does lead on on stuff that is just because it's in the in the papers. And when you, in an environment where the papers are really skewed politically, that was one of our endless arguments with the BBC back in the times that you you know we've got a a newspaper industry with a sort of seventy percent Tory bias. Uh, so just leading on stories from the newspapers uh, just gives you, you you might import that bias and it's important. And, and the, the really frustrating thing sometimes there'll be a story and the BBC journalist would call us up about it one day and we'd say, we explain it to them. And they'd say, well, I don't think it's much of a story or whatever. And they wouldn't they wouldn't run it. And then the Daily Mail would splash on it and then they would suddenly you'd find the Today program <laughs> running it. And then you'd call them up and say, well, hang on, you told me it wasn't a story yesterday. And they'd say, well, it's sort of got legs now. <laughs> and and they'd be like, hey, the Daily Mail's run it, therefore yeah. we've got to. Uh, it doesn't and that, exist unless the Daily Mail, it's and, not like a... And, and so that relationship between the newspapers and the broadcaster, I think it must have broken down a bit. I mean, the penny must drop that they're not... As well as well read or as representative of, of the country as they used to be, and and you know the broadcasters need to you know take other leads, social media or their own reporting as more of the lead. There's still a kind of conviction. I mean, what you don't have is the front page, which you used to be able to hold up. And I do remember yeah. actually on the Evening Standard, I remember the front page when John Smith died, and no one else was reporting it, and mm. that was your front page. And mm. so it, it did have an extraordinary power hmm. you don't have that anymore because you're reading on your ipad and so yeah. on but still there is a kind of conviction to some of those newspapers yeah. and if they keep running just keep running and running and running stuff yeah. it yeah. does it does t- yeah. tend to well, take I remember on a back momentum the day when the evening standard had a number of editions throughout the yeah. day yeah. and it was quite a big moment like on budget day i know you know when mm. the evening standard budget edition mm. came out you know that was always you know everyone was rushing to get their copy of the evening um standard but as you say that the landscape has changed now and Let's focus on where we are now. We have Keir Starmer doing really well in the polls. We think there's going to be, there will be a a general election at some point next year. Tim, how do you think Keir Starmer and his team are managing their media strategy? Um, Well, it seems they're obviously doing quite a lot right according to the the polls. I think they had a very good conference. They had a very clear thing, sense of what they wanted to to communicate. I mean, I heard that when you did the word cloud from the focus groups after the conference, in the middle was this enormous word that just said glitter. That's the only thing that anybody, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing that anybody uh, picked up from it. But apart from that, I, I, I think that the stuff that did get through, I thought was effective. I think Rachel Reeves had an, uh, a good week and Keir Starmer's speech, I thought had a, had a, had a coherent message in it that, that did strike a chord. So they, yeah, they're clearly doing uh, something right in terms of how they approach the media yeah i i i I think it is just a lot less to do with personal relationships with with individual journalists now and it is much more about getting their direct communication to the voters that they care about whether that is through social media or working out who they are and targeting them individually as much as possible you don't have to go through the media as much as you, you had to do uh, and I hope they don't sort of over-exaggerate the importance of individual journalists. It's about trying to work out which voters they need to persuade and finding out how to target them uh, individually with, with policies that are, that are attractive. So it's probably a much broader campaign strategy needed rather than a specific sort of media strategy about particular journalists or particularly newspapers. And social media certainly gives you the chance to sort of communicate directly in a way that you didn't have when, when you were doing mm. the job. The problem with it for politicians is is that it gives you no time, right? Because stuff's mm. just announced constantly and you mm. don't know when stuff's going to appear. And a story breaks and then it's just running and you have mm. no ability to to have any time to think before you go and mm. um, 
uh, and respond to it. When you were doing it, it was still sort of, you know, you'd, you'd get told by a journalist something was going to break and then you'd have a few hours to think about it. And yeah. now it doesn't really work like that. There's a sort of constant yeah. new stream of news. Yeah. And that must be ex exhausting. Uh, <laughs> it must be exhausting. I thought, I mean, I thought I worked quite hard when I was doing it, but it must be just uh, exhausting that it, it just... Uh, keep changing but but you've got to be almost because of that sort of blizzard coming your way all the time and uh you've got to make sure that you do have a clear architecture that you are trying to communicate i mean he's got his five things and he's got his five missions, missions that's it missions yeah and sunak's got his five and they're, they're both an attempt both sunak's one and starmer's one is an attempt to sort of fight against this blizzard of noise that you get and being constantly bashed off course uh, and you've got to try and grip it somehow by saying look these are the things that I really care about these are the things that I really want to focus on and try as much as possible uh, communicate them but I suspect it's more successful now especially as we get nearer the election when we will all be bombarded with these direct messages rather than messages that have to be mediated and go through the, the media I think it is probably more easy to communicate what those are than it, than it was when when we were relying on the goodwill of journalists to write down what we were saying and put it in the newspaper you've now got the ability to communicate those key messages directly much much more clearly and uh, so i think it'll be his the strategy about how they do that successfully will be more important than their actual you know what is our strategy to deal with the telegraph or whatever and Sarah, one of the stereotypes about the media, and you know, I think there's some truth in it, is that if you look at newspapers, less so with broadcast, although the broadcast landscape has changed a lot as well with new players like GB News, etc. But there's always been this view, and certainly when I was in Labour comms, that from the newspaper, from print journalism, there is this bias against the Labour Party. There's always an inbuilt bias. It's just the way things are. Because if you look at who the newspaper proprietors are from Lebedev to the Barclay Brothers, although the Telegraph's up for sale at the moment, Spectator, etc. How does Keir Starmer's team navigate that? Or does that genuinely matter less in this age of social media and new entrants into the market and, and just a broader landscape? I think that there are some founding principles about relationships between media and newspapers and politicians. And one is that um, at your throat or at your feet. And I think there is a sense of power when the power moves. So some newspapers will want to fight a Labour victory, but they'll also be aware that they have to pay attention, that, that you can't quite treat them in the, in the same way. And I think the fact that business, when business mm. came on side mm. for Rachel Reeves was such a, a, a big thing. I um, co-run a science summit in um, Braemar and who did they want this year? They wanted Labour figures and it was interesting. David Lammy came very relaxed, was just given a different kind of audience and he was he was funny about it. Mm. He said, oh, you know, Sarah, nice to see you and I'm not on the 610 today. <laughs> I noticed, you know, that mm. so suddenly you're given a main mm. slot, you're given time, you're given a kind of respect, even if they then go through the throat. Um, so I think that's the first thing that Labour's in that position. So there is a sort of respect that's already there. Then on the bias, there will be things. Gosh, I remember the thing that I was always um, 
uh, told, you know, had to be top of the agenda if ever I met politicians, which was the non-dom. So, you know, right. are you sure about the non-dom? I mean, <laughs> honestly, yes. you know, and I kind of thought all the issues probably that are facing um, people at the moment. You know, For the newspapers, proprietors, it's a very important It's a issue. very, very important matter. <laughs> it's all they talk about down the dog and dog. It really is. So, um, and I guess when Peter Mandelson said he was relaxed about people being filthy rich, you mm. know, he that was a as long as of, they pay their taxes. As long as they pay that. their yes. taxes. Mm. Oh. Um, so I think I'm sure it'll it'll get rougher, but I think that because readers are slightly different and have other different sources of news and so on, it might it might play out a bit differently. And as I say, I think already there's a sort of respect. Also. I don't know if there's a bit of a sense of fair play, that sense of a, a government that's been in power for a very long time, which is what happened before Blair. Yeah. So you've got to you, you've got to think about how people feel about that. So what can show that um, Keir Starmer is what pre Tony Blair used to be referred to as the loony left? You know yeah. what's the and because already he slayed the dragons of his own party, which I think you will also get respect for. That's what mm. Tony Blair had to do. Mm. And that's what Keir Starmer's done. So so it'll be interesting. Mm. <laughs> uh, conversely, if you look at the Conservatives, do you think the entrance of, sort of GB News, Talk TV into the broadcast market has actually potentially harmed the Conservative Party because it's, it's kind of dragging them towards what is quite a small, a vociferous core audience, having you know the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party being a presenter on this news channel, it's quite a tricky balance for them to get right. Yes, I just think Rishi Sunet's much happier addressing um, a great AI conference mm. than mm. having an image of, um, it was Pretty Patel and Nigel Farage, mm. wasn't it? It's just, I mean, Boris Johnson is a big figure People may will watch GB News because of him. You don't know how things can be destabilized, but I don't know what the effect will be mm. on the the actual politics. Yeah, it's a problem for all of us now. With everybody creates their own echo chamber mm. so easily, but I think for politicians, you can easily create your own echo chamber by only hanging around with people who agree with you, only doing the media that agrees with you. Uh, and thinking that you you must be very popular because everyone seems very nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or, or that classic, that very hard-hitting interview where, where Jeremy Hunt was interviewed by Esther McVie. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, the Anderson with Suella <laughs> Bravman. How brilliant are you exactly? <laughs> Honestly, Have yeah. you been working out? <laughs> yeah. like, so look, we... Look, you've both given quite a sort of glowing report of how Labour is doing at the moment with, with the media and, and the polls are looking good. Tim... Aren't the gloves going to come off a bit from the media? The media is not just going to continue to give Labour an, an easy ride. And when the policy announcements are made, that's when it is going to get a bit rougher for Labour. Yeah, look, the, the election is definitely not won. And the poll lead is not in the bag at all, I would say. And there definitely needs to be, if there's a criticism of the Labour conference that I would have, is is that not from the stage, but it's certainly from the some of the people around, there was that sense of, well, we, this, is, this is done, this is in the bag. I think that complacency is is very dangerous. So I think it is going to get a lot tougher. People are going to focus on not whether they uh, hate the government or not, which is what the current polls are really about, but like who they want to run the country for the next five years. And the polls will, I think, automatically narrow when that becomes uh, the question. Does it does it matter in that calculation that Keir Starmer personally is much less popular than Blair was, even though the poll lead is roughly similar to what it was then? Yes, it probably it probably does. Not often that uh, personal poll ratings provide a pretty good estimate 
of the final election vote better estimate than the party ratings do if you look back historically so that that i, I don't know the the current gap on the on the head to head uh, poll between sunak and starmuda but it, if history is ending to be judged by that is probably a more reali- well, realistic it's quite sense interesting of the because polling. they're both much less popular than major or blair were in 96 yeah. so sunak mm. is very unpopular and so the gap is actually quite big but starmer is still a lot less popular than blair was so every politician is much less popular than any politician was back then it's sort of it become much harder to be a, a politician a, a politician i think that's right it is it is probably harder to be a politician now that there are hundreds of thousands millions of people screaming at politicians and writing horrible stuff about them every day on everybody's feed and you often think you know god have we thought the you know telegraph of didn't like us very much back in the day or the mail didn't like us back in the day wait, wait until you hear about the telegraph readers and the mail readers are all online now and at, attacking every every politician never below the line never <laughs> never ever so, never so the, the, fact, the fact is there there are able there are many more negative things to say about politicians there are many more ways of saying that over and over again so i think overall the standing of politicians probably has gone down and i've just got one final question and this is probably for both of you but tim i'll, I'll come to you first what is the difference between working your media strategy in opposition where you're very active, but you're landing a lot of attack lines all the time? You're often mm. working, collaborating with journalists to land attack stories. Mm. How does that shift when you suddenly win power? Well, yeah, that's the transition that, that I lived through. We're going from opposition into into government in 97. And yes, I, I think we were. it will be similar for Labour if they do uh, win and they are successful in the election they will have a lot of people who haven't had experience of of government or communicating government and i think we made some bad mistakes when we did make that shift and because you are in opposition yeah you're throwing bricks at the government you're you're trying to you're, you're often working with journalists to try and amplify a story or try and give them a story you're a sort of guerrilla army trying to uh, cause trouble for the government and throw them off course and you've got it and you're you can be lightning quick there's no great structures and bureaucracy that you need to deal with you can you know if the leader says let's go after that then it's done and you know it's on the lunchtime news sometimes if you take that attitude into government you take those techniques into government it, it can go wrong uh, quite quickly because you are it's a policy led there's got to be a process of deciding what the policy is you can't be running around leaping on every story and trying to put out a press release or, or on it and, and trying to ramp it up uh, you've got to be considering things more carefully making sure that all the right people are being consulted and that the policy has been announced properly and I, I remember the the time when in 97 when there was soon after we were in government there was a story about the executives who were running the national lottery contractor uh, they all got big bonuses, uh, and they they had they had been awarded big bonuses, which in opposition would have been, you know, just goes to show why we need a government committed to the many, not the few, and, and, and all that. And you know, we'd be out of touch Tories. You know, it's absolutely outrageous. They really should have clamped down on it or whatever. And and we'd have been nicely in the story, and it would have been along one of our themes. If you're then asked in government what you should do, and if you take that same approach and say it's absolutely outrageous as well, and I can't believe what's happening, you know, that's you know, that you're the government. So there, the next question: well, What are you going to do about it then? And then, <laughs> and then, and if you haven't got an answer to that quickly, then you're in quite a lot of trouble quite quickly. So you've got to make sure that you do take time to get the answer right because you'll be held to account on it rather than just trying to maximize your uh, media effectiveness and and you're you're no longer just an attack force so i think yeah my advice to people running the media side for labor when they go into government 
take a, a different approach from opposition because it's um, it is absolutely not the same. And the other piece of advice would be to you often go in thinking, oh, all those civil servants, they were, you know, they must be so useless. All they were, all they're against us. You know that they are. You know they're either they're either useless or they they must have been against and against us. And neither neither is true. There are actually some incredibly effective, hardworking civil servants on both policy and on media relations, and they were doing their job and they can do the job for you and so working well and effectively with the uh, civil service team rather than being in a sort of combative relationship with them I think is really important for a, a new communications team coming in. So Sarah in opposition you have politicians who are always really keen to come on the the airwaves and come on things like the Today programme but that often changes when they become ministers. How important do you think it is for government ministers and the cabinet to do big broadcast interviews regularly like the Today programme? Because there was a period when the Conservative government sort of punished the Today programme and punished other big morning broadcasters. And of like... course Boris Johnson refused to do Andrew Neil during the last election, yeah. caused a big stink, but didn't do any, him any harm and, and he still won the elections. What do you think the sort of ethics are about press teams suddenly pulling ministers and uh, and principals and broadcast interviews? I don't think it works for them. T- Tim's point that you have to move from an opposition way of looking at things, of, of um, combative, to being more statesmanlike. And actually what's slightly disarming about Kirstar is he's become statesmanlike while, <laughs> while in opposition. But the first thing that happened after Boris Johnson's huge majority was that they refused to put any minister onto the Today programme literally the next morning. And so it was as if, oh, now we declare war on the BBC. And I think we just won this huge, what? Um, and I think they wasted a lot of time. You know, It was apart from anything else in the months, uh, months before COVID. So they wasted a lot of time declaring war on journalists where actually they should have been thinking about governing. And I think when you start pulling ministers, in the end, it looks both undemocratic um, and actually it's unstatesmanlike. So I I would say absolutely you need to, to go on to the Today programme. <laughs> <laughs> and Times Radio, Aisha. And Times Radio. Radio. Weekend Drive, <laughs> Saturday and Sunday, uh, four till seven. Um, um, well, what a fascinating discussion. It has been so interesting. Yes, thank you, thank very you much. so much. Um, to Tim and Sarah. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Aisha, that was um, a brilliant discussion between two veterans of the media politico world. What um, what were your big takeaways? Oh, it was such an interesting discussion. I literally felt you and I could have talked to them for about oh, yeah, we two had, hours. We had another hour's worth of questions. We could they wanted to, to escape. It was like a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we're in my basement. <laughs> we're never letting you escape. No, it was so good. Okay, my big takeaways were... Tim making the point that the influence of newspapers is far less than it was back Mm. in 1997. I still think newspapers are really, really important. And I think they, they do shape broadcast work. But I think it is fair to say that newspapers are not the gatekeepers that they used to be. I think the the sort of point that Tim was making about newspapers being less important was really interesting. And I think there's also something we didn't really get into, which is the way that the economics of the newspaper industry now works means that there are far fewer journalists working for them. So the Express is an extreme example because it's it's changed a lot in the last sort of 
15 years, but it used to have a million readers. You know, back in 2010, it had a million readers. Now it's got about 100, 150,000 readers. They used to have 300 journalists. They've now got about 30. You know, that really changes the ability of newspapers to actually break news. So a lot of what they are doing is either opinion or regurgitating stuff they're finding on the internet because they don't have any people to do anything mm. more than that. And the people they do have are writing four or five stories a day. Yeah, and the other thing which I thought was really interesting is that what Sarah said from from the editor's point of view, which is they will follow the power. And mm. if it looks like Keir Starmer is going to win the next general election, you know, they are going to gravitate towards Labour. And it's interesting what she said about business, because it's about when the herd moves. But, you know, when mm. all of those other bits of the architecture of influence and politics shifts, and business is such a big, big part of that. And for the last two to three Labour conferences you've noticed at the the Labour business days they have been jam packed and there's been sort of extra business days and you you just think yeah the the newspapers are going to be quite influenced by what a lot of business leaders think as well. And I do wonder about what the sun's going to do this time as well because there was a there was a big poll a couple of weeks ago by Servation which looked at how people were voting by readership of newspapers. And some voters are already much more likely to vote Labour than they are Tory, despite it still being nominally a Tory supporting paper. And I do wonder... There was some of the coverage around the Labour conference. Harry Cole, who's their political correspondent, had a picture with Keir Starmer looking sort of friendly. I do wonder if they might be gearing up for another switch before the election, just as they did in, in 97. I don't think any of the other papers will, but, but they're an interesting one to watch. And then the, the final point I wanted to just pull out, which Tim made towards the end, was around um, governments behaving like oppositions uh, and how you need to switch the way you do media management as you go into government. Because I think the current government really have failed that test. They have started doing media like an opposition. Uh, they started you know, governing like an opposition. They started governing like an opposition. They've started using media like the opposition. They, you know, they keep attacking stuff that they're responsible for. And it's it's sort of a huge own goal. But I think they've they've sort of ended up there because they're sort of so exhausted and have run out of ideas. But 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 there is a sort of a lesson, I think, for, for Labour there that in in this sort of very fast-paced media environment, the temptation is to comment on every story, to try and put yourself in every story. Once you're the government, if you do try and do that in the way this government have done, uh, you end up looking quite helpless almost, like you're sort of lost in this sea of, of, of problems. You're commenting on it, but not doing anything about it. Thanks very much for listening to The Power Test. Do get in touch. Tweet us at The Power Test or email us at pod at thepowertest.co.uk. We'll be back next week live from the Festival of Higher Education discussing the future of our universities. Join us then. <laughs>